0: Welcome to Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio, big nonprofit ideas for the other 95%. I'm your aptly named host of your favorite hebdominal podcast, and oh, I'm glad you're with me. I'd suffer the effects of prosopagnosia if I saw that you missed this week's show, your 5.1-hour legal audit. Gene Takagi returns. He walks you through the five quick checks. Of your nonprofit's documents, processes, and status that make sure you're on the right side of the law. Gene is our legal contributor and managing attorney at NEO, the nonprofit and exempt organizations law group. On Tony's Take Two, mea culpa. We're sponsored by Turn 2 Communications, PR and content for nonprofits. Your story is their mission. Turn 2.co. And by Send In Blue. The only all in one digital marketing platform empowering nonprofits to grow. Tony.ma slash sendinblue. What a pleasure to welcome, as it always is, Gene Takagi back to Nonprofit Radio. He is our legal contributor, of course, and managing attorney of NEO, the nonprofit and exempt organizations law group in San Francisco. He edits the wildly popular. Nonprofitlawblog.com and is a part time lecturer at Columbia University. The firm is at neolawgroup.com and he's at GTAC. You certainly should be following him. If you're not, uh, it's your life. Welcome back, Gene. Great to be back, Tony. How are you? Uh, always a pleasure. You're smiling. I love it. Thank you. How is everything going San Francisco wise now, late June?
1: Well, we've been having really comfortable, even chilly weather that Mark Twain, uh, quote, I, th- I don't think it was actually Mark Twain, but about the coldest, uh, day he spent being a summer, uh, in San Francisco <laughs> is, uh, somewhat apt right now, but, um, not envying the, the high temperatures up, uh, in my home country of the Pacific Northwest. Yeah.
0: Oregon. Uh, I was just talking to Amy Sample Ward, uh, earlier today and yesterday too. And, uh, 116. She said it's Crazy. broken. It's broken since then, but un- so, uh, astronomically high temperatures for, for three days in a row they had.
1: Yeah. Um, unbelievable.
0: Yeah. Uh, I know. Uh,
1: okay. But you're, uh, you're much more comfortable in San Francisco.
0: Good. Yeah, taking no any complaints. Off, <laughs> Taking any time off this
1: summer? Um, I'm planning to go back to Canada once the borders are open um, to visit my mom and family, uh, but um, no word on the official opening date yet. We're hoping by August 1st.
0: Okay. So Canada is still restricting
1: U.S. residents? Yeah, it, it's still kind of closed off um, right now, um, but we'll see when it opens up again.
0: Okay. Okay. Maybe I've been paying more attention to Australia than I have Canada. Uh, I, know, <laughs> I know Sydney is on a new lockdown. All
1: right. Where, where, uh, where in Canada?
0: Where's your family in Canada?
1: Uh, in Vancouver. So in that Pacific Northwest. British Columbia.
0: Beautiful. Yes. Right. Right. All right. So you have this nifty one hour, five point audit for us. Uh, a review of uh, documents and a process and your status. Uh, why, don't you, uh, why don't you get us started? What, uh, this, is not, this is a legitimate audit. Uh, not a, uh, this is not an Arizona style uh, audit.
1: Yeah. And this isn't an accountant's audit. So this is kind of your own internal check of do these things and you'll sleep better at night knowing that you're either okay or you know what you need to fix. So, um, if you
0: need need to fix some things, uh, you might need someone, uh, like, like you to help.
1: Could be, or you might even be able to do it yourself. So some of the fixes are easy. Some of the fixes might be a little bit more difficult, but, um, You should know where you stand. I think that's that's the first thing, and that's why, for sure, first step. Know know your status. Okay, so uh, so kick us off. What's your what's your first idea? So you know, I think the first thing you look at is your articles or certificate of incorporation. That was your formation document to start out with, and you want to see what the purpose of the organization is. So the articles um, govern. Every other, they, they're the like the one ring that rules all the rings. Showing my geeky side, um, that's the one document that rules all the other documents, and there's no superseding what the articles say. So if the articles say in the purpose statement what you do, and you've evolved past that, maybe there's a geographic limitation that says you only operate in New York in the articles, and you know, 50 years ago that was true, but since then you're off, you know, you're operating in the tri-state area or you know, also in California, whatever that may be, your articles will tell you what you can and can't do. And if they're so limiting um, and you've grown past it, you've got to fix that. So amending the articles um, would be the next step. But within that one hour, it'll probably just take you two minutes to read that purpose statement and say, oh, this is right online with our mission statement or it's so broad that it covers anything we might do now or in the future. Or you might get that note that says, ah, there's a geographic limitation or our purpose isn't so specific anymore. We've expanded beyond that, um, and we need to fix it. So that that's the first thing. Why does this matter? What, what, suppose we have evolved past what our articles of
0: incorporation say. It's an ancient document. Yeah, it got us started. Uh, it's
1: outlived its usefulness. What's the difference? Well, it's that one document that rules all, that that. Um, still is in effect. So even though it was drafted and, and adopted a long time ago, that is the principal document that governs what you can do. So if you're doing something that you're not allowed to do in your articles, you could actually be subject to a lawsuit that says you're operating and diverting charitable assets that were intended for this purpose, which was your artic- in, in the Articles mm. of Incorporation, and now using it for another purpose. So that's, that's the big thing to, to, to worry about in terms of operating outside of your articles. How much is this enforced? Probably not very much absent a complaint from somebody. But if you have an unhappy board member or an unhappy donor that takes mm-hmm. a look at the articles or an unhappy funder, um, I can get you into some trouble and it probably shows you that the very very most basic step in in your due diligence or in your homework about making sure your organization is run properly you missed um and that would, could be a sign of other problems so you want to fix that if it's if it's a problem don't lose too much sleep over it but identify it and fix it if necessary all right
0: so you mentioned funders uh i i assume this is such a basic document and we uh, you lawyers, me, former lawyer, would call them your organic documents because they are your, your origin. This and the next one, we're going to talk about your bylaws. Um, so these are, these are commonly asked for by, uh, by, by foundations
1: or other, other institutional funders? I wouldn't necessarily say commonly, but they're usually publicly available. Um, and so that mm-hmm. means that okay. anybody could ask for it and you would have to give it to them. Or more often, it's just available on the Secretary of State's website or something where you could just
0: uh, right. pull up a PDF yeah.
1: file and take it. So look.
0: You want to avoid embarrassment there, too, if, if folks exactly. are looking at that. Um, what about um, financial purposes? Would would banks, if you were opening a, a, some kind of credit relationship or something, might they ask for your... Articles of incorporation?
1: Yeah, that's not so uncommon for a bank to take a look to see your formation document. They're not going to be sort of regulating whether you're operating within your purpose or not. But one thing to think about is that if a donor gives to you, and let's say your purpose was to feed uh, those experiencing homelessness in New York City, um, and then- 10 years later, oh, by the way, you want to turn into an arts organization that supports the opera in Manhattan. Um, You could do that by amending your articles. And if you do something drastic like that, if, if your mission has evolved over time quite distinct from what you originally planned and you never bothered fixing your articles, that could be seen as a serious breach uh, and diversion of charitable assets. So a donor that donated to you would have expected you to um, be in compliance with your articles and may have donated based on that reliance that you're helping the homeless rather than supporting the opera. And that's another thing you need to avoid. So if you were raising funds under the old purpose, the funds that you raise are still stuck on that purpose. You can't deploy those assets for a brand new purpose that you never informed um, the, the government agency that, that uh, has your secretary, uh, your articles of incorporation filed. Um, you can't divert it for other purposes.
0: Okay. And that's, that's probably the secretary of state. Uh, in, in, well, it, it varies. I shouldn't say probably it's right. The secretary of state in some States, some States, it's the attorney general's office has a charities bureau they, that might be the office in some places.
1: Yeah. So the the Secretary of State or Division of Corporations or or something like that would be the the ones that are looking at your articles um, in, on the formation. Uh, okay. Um, and then okay. uh, amending it. So they're kind of a ministerial body. The Attorney Generals usually are your charities regulator. So they would be the ones that say you're not you're using charitable assets for the wrong purpose. Okay.
0: Right. Because you are incorporated as. Uh, a a not for profit corporation in your state so that's why gene that's why you're uh, you uh, folks are incorporated as that w- in that way so that's why it would be whatever agency that regulates the the corporations in your state
1: right that's that's how you would fix the articles and yeah. why you want to check check because anybody else may be able to pull those articles from that that department
0: right you're a you're a non nonprofit corporation yeah under state law It's time for a break. Turn 2 Communications. The Chronicle of Philanthropy, The New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, USA Today, Stanford Social Innovation Review, The Washington Post. The Hill, Cranes, Nonprofit Quarterly, Forbes, Market Watch. That's where Turn 2 clients have gotten exposure. Do you want that kind of exposure? Turn 2 has the relationships that can make it happen. Turn-2.co. Your story is their mission. All right. So I mentioned uh, the second check uh, of our five is uh, your bylaws. What, what, remind folks what the purpose of the bylaws are and what are we looking for
1: here? So the bylaws are pretty much the instruction manual for how you're... Um organization is governed. And by by governed, I I mean sort of board of directors, how they operate, how they meet, who are the officers of the organization, what authority do they have, what committees do they have. Um, And so really are um, more specific than the articles of incorporation, although they have to be consistent with the articles, because again, the articles rule all. Um, But in an hour, you won't be able to review your whole bylaws. But what I suggest here in that one-hour audit is check the provision on how directors are selected. So there may be a regular election process where the board uh, is called self-perpetuating. The board elects its own successors. Uh, but oftentimes, uh, organizations will forget to elect their directors you know, when their term ends. So it might say the term is two years or three years. Um, And they just let directors keep serving until they want to resign. Well, that's a problem. Um, So making sure that you are fulfilling the requirements uh, uh, about director uh, elections um, is really important. Sometimes um, directors are selected through other methods. They might be appointed or designated by another party or an individual. And that's pretty common in private foundations, a little less common in public charities. But you have those type of of provisions in your bylaws. You want to make sure that the person who is appointing or designating them is actually doing so. Mm -hmm. Uh, And you want to make sure that you're sort of following all the the provisions about, well, how elections are supposed to be run, if they're nominating processes or anything else. If you're not complying with those, get rid of them um, and, and state exactly how you are electing directors. And um, that's that's what you should really check because um, if you enter into a big transaction like a merger or you're gonna get into a big lease um, oftentimes the other party may want to see your bylaws um, and you are making representations in that contract of saying that we are in compliance with all of our sort of organizational documents uh, and by not checking whether you are or not, especially on the selection of directors, which is maybe the most important thing in your bylaws, um, that's that's a huge red flag and may let the other party off the hook to be able to cancel that contract that you entered into and kick you out if it's a lease or um, right. you know blow the merger up. So you want to make sure if you're making those type of representations that you are compliant. And again, it's just basic compliance. That's one of the the you know top five I would say to make sure your directors are regularly elected so you want to make sure you cover your bases just to, to look like a good corporate citizen. And part of what
0: you'll find in the bylaws is how to amend the bylaws. So if you find that you're not complying with what the bylaws are, either I get you either amend the bylaws to to the way you are practicing now or conform your practice to what the bylaws says but but if you need to amend the bylaws, in the bylaws, it should say how to amend them, right? With some, some majority or other vote of the board members, I presume.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So if it's really simple, it'll say you can amend it by action of the board. But there are some complicated amendment provisions as well. So now we're digging a little deeper. So All if we right. do need to amend it, we're going to go more than an hour on our overall legal review. Okay. But yeah, it is something you're going to need to do. And you want to check. In that case, if you can get, if you have the resources to afford a lawyer, can get a pro bono lawyer. Have them help you with the amendment to the bylaws. That's a, a pretty major action.
0: Okay. Okay. Well, yeah, but we're just at we're at the exploratory stage. This is an audit. We're not we're not doing the corrective actions. We're correct preparing. We're preparing our auditor's report so we know we know we're we're uh, we we're okay sleeping soundly. We're not. We don't have any time bombs that we're not aware of. The right the unknown unknowns. We don't have any of those because we're digging. Okay. Um, but then, if you need to go further. Beyond the, the hour, you probably should read all your bylaws to make sure that everything you're doing is in compliance with what you say you're supposed to be doing.
1: Yeah. And, you know, even before you hire a lawyer, it would be a great idea for cost efficiency to figure out what you actually do that's compliant with the bylaws and wherever you're not compliant. So you can just make that list for the lawyer to say, oh, we haven't been doing this. Can you help us fix it?
0: Okay. Right. And then, Right. And there are going to be provisions of state law, right? That are going to govern some of the actions depending on what they are. All right. That's where we get too much in the weeds. Okay. But that's <laughs> right. why you need, that's why it's good to have some help, either paid or pro bono. Uh, so, you know, you're complying with state law. If you need to amend your bylaws. That's right. Okay, cool. I see I'm trainable. I'm trained <laughs> through the years. I've, I've picked up some things from you. Um, all right.
1: What's our, what's our number three of five? So n- number three is um, you know because fundraising is so important, of course, for for nonprofit organizations, you want to make sure that you are helping your donors as well. And if you don't have the right language in your donor receipt, a donor might not be able to take a charitable contribution deduction if audited and might get it reversed on them. So it's really important to know what you need to put in a donation receipt.
0: Okay. Um, and we know that uh, for donations of $250 or more, that's when, that's when you have to issue the
1: receipt. Yeah, so that is for, for a donor. So, a donor might need just a check, you know, their, their return check um, for, uh, or a copy of the check um, for a donation of $100 and to take a deduction right. for it. That might be enough. But if it is $250 or more, they need a special receipt coming back from the charity. Uh, and in that receipt, of course, it's, you know, the name of the donor and the amount donated. And if there's non-cash stuff, a description of that stuff. But what's key is there has to be a specific sentence in there that says something to the effect of um, no goods or services were provided by the organization in return for this contribution. Um, or if there was something that was um, given back to the um, to the donor uh, in exchange that wasn't just very trivial and, and what lawyers call de minimis jargon jail there, <laughs> but um, <laughs> it, for, for something so, so trivial and small, like a little sticker or something, um, you don't have to value that. But if it's something like a ticket to a concert, um, it's kind of like the same type of receipt for those um, of you out there that attend a gala event and you get the chicken dinner that comes with your, you know, uh, Uh, attendance, and you spend $100 on the ticket, you get some sort of receipt that comes back to you saying, thank you for your $100. By the way, $25 was the value of your chicken dinner, so you can get a charitable contribution deduction of up to $75. So that's the same type of thing that you would expect here.
0: The other other place this plays out a lot is uh, schools with sporting events. When people make a donation, and maybe in exchange for their donation, they get A ticket package of some value. So you have to report that, reveal that ticket value in your receipt or your acknowledgement letter. The other thing we didn't mention is, okay. Okay. Um, Also the date of gift, which, which becomes important at the end of the year, some, you know, some last minute, December 30, December 31 gifts might not get processed until early January, but, but the the gift was received on december 30th or 31st so you want to make that make that clear
1: yeah absolutely and the irs has a publication if you if you google irs sort of donor receipt you'll probably find uh, the publication that tells you exactly what elements that you, you should include on a receipt and when it's triggered we talked about $250 or more there's also something called the quid pro quo which we talked about as well the chicken dinner type uh, contribution. So there's certain elements that need to be put in depending upon that gift and what else comes back to the donor in return. Just take a quick look at that, but make sure your donor receipt has that language. If nothing is returned back to the donor, that it actually states that Um, because in every legal case where the IRS tries to deny a deduction and the donor fights it, and this could sometimes be for like a million bucks or 2 million or $10 million, Mm. the IRS always wins because the plain language of the statute says, if you don't have this language, you don't get a deduction and it's hard to fight. Even if you think for moral reasons, of course they gave this gift and they should get a deduction. And it's just one little sentence or phrase that's missing. That's ridiculous, but that's the law.
0: It's time for Tony's take two. Mea culpa. If you were a fast listener last week, you would have listened on Monday and you would have heard a nonprofit radio with an inappropriate Tony's Take Two. I made an inappropriate joke about drug addiction and boasted about privilege without bothering to acknowledge it. If you heard that, show that had that version of Tony's Take-Two, I'm sorry that you had to listen to that. I regret that I recorded it. I thank the team at N10 and Amy Sample Ward for pointing out the inappropriate Tony's Take-Two to me. They did it on Monday. By Tuesday morning... There was a new version of Nonprofit Radio with a different Tony's Take Two. I hope it never happens again. If it does, I hope you and your fellow listeners will let me know. That is Tony's Take Two. Now back to your five-point, one-hour legal audit. The publication you're referring to is uh, 526. It's it's written. It's it is very really very valuable. Um, it's written for donors to tell them what they need to substantiate. But nonprofits can use it to make sure that they're giving their donors what they need to to make the substantiation. So uh, you're right. It's online. It's publication 526. And it, it goes through all the rules that your donors have to follow. So you can help them by reading that, by, by checking that out as well.
1: And there's a little brochure too. That's a summary of the things that we talked about, which is even shorter. So um, at okay. least use that.
0: Least, yeah. Yeah. 526 is pretty long, but but it's got a, a linkable uh, or a linked uh, table of contents too. So yeah. there's there's some help. The IRS is, I, I mean, the folks are trying to do their jobs. I always, I always feel bad for the IRS. Uh, I don't know. It's a tough
1: job. It really they're a is.
0: beleaguered uh, agency. <laughs> you know, nobody wants to pay them or uh, do what they. Nobody wants to be uh, questioned by them. People's hearts race when they get a an envelope from them. You know, but overall, I mean, I I think for as broad as their work is, I I, I credit them. I think I think the IRS is. I think they're doing a good job as as best they can with being having the reputation that they have and all this being so politicized through the years and etc. So I've never been audited though, too. So maybe if I had been privately audited, uh, maybe, maybe my opinion of the IRS would be different. I don't know.
1: Have you ever been audited, Gene? I have been when I left a big firm and opened my own firm, my income went down that first year dramatically because I left the big firm with no clients. So yeah. um, that triggered an, an audit of oh, like, it did. what are okay. you doing? Okay. Um, I'll just say, yeah, the, the the audit room at the IRS office is a very, very depressing place where people are very—they're scared out of their lives. Yeah. It was academically, it was kind of interesting for me because I had no no problems with explaining it. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I could see the nerves or feel the tension in that office for both the IRS agents and the taxpayers.
0: Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm glad you, uh, you stayed out of, uh, you stayed out of prison, right? No fine. <laughs> okay. Okay. Just settled out. You settled uh, and admitted no guilt, uh, admitted no wrongdoing and settled. <laughs>
1: yeah. All right. Uh, what's next in our, in our five points? Um, so this one is kind of a little bit of a no brainer, but I, I think just make sure you you're standing with the IRS still says you have 501c3 status. Yes. Um, so, I think it's a good idea to check because your donors will be checking, especially your funders will be checking. And it's so simple to do, you know, literally if you've done it a couple of times, you can do it in under a minute. Um, so the, you know, if you Google IRS and T E O S, which stands for tax exempt organization search. Um, so IRS Teos, you'll get the website where you just enter the organization's name or EIN and it'll, you know, spit out a link and you link to your organization's name and it'll tell you if you're a 501c3 or not and whether you're a public charity, which may be an important distinction for some organizations. Um, And a public charity would be obviously not a private foundation and not subject to all those other rules uh, that private foundations are subject to. But if you don't get the numbers right, you can actually tip over into private foundation status Um, So it's an important thing for some organizations to keep track of, to make sure you're still 501c3 exempt uh, and a public charity in the IRS's views. And that's updated nearly weekly. So um, you have a good sense of where you actually stand. And again, take you a minute or two minutes to find that.
0: Gene, was that like three or four years ago when tens of thousands or maybe it was hundreds of thousands of organizations lost their exempt status because they hadn't filed their their 990s for three consecutive years. I'm sure you remember that. Was that like three, four years ago? or
1: I think it was even longer. longer? So I, I uh, think it might have been, gosh, close to seven or eight years ago. Okay. Um, and about 600,000 organizations, I believe, lost their tax, okay. tax-exempt status. So it was a huge number, um, partly because smaller, well, some organizations just weren't running anymore. and. Yeah. Yeah. The IRS doesn't know when you stop running. Um, so they're just on the list of, of um, on their list, and, and they were dropped off. But many were actually running and just didn't file their 990s. And there was no rule before that said if you miss three in a row, we're automatically revoking your tax exempt status. And it's done electronically, so it's no agent discretion. It just happens. Um, and so it, it, it's hard to, to Come back from that. It is possible, but um, it, it's still important for organizations to keep track. If you miss one nine ninety or you're late, don't worry too much about it. But if you have missed two, high alert that you don't even get an extension on your third missed one. Even if you apply for one, you have to file it by the May fifteenth deadline if you're a calendar filer. So pay attention to that.
0: Okay, important. Thank you. And and you know this is an easy thing. You can check in a couple minutes. Uh, so it's part of your one-hour audit. So just make sure that something uh, something didn't happen. Even if you're you're sure you're filing your nine-nineties, you know, for for two or three minutes, check out uh, IRS
1: tax-exempt organization search. T-E-O. Yeah, just in case it was lost in the mail. And you know, the IRS during the COVID pandemic had, I think, ten million people, ten million pieces of paper filings in their warehouses. That somebody had to process when they started coming back. So they're delayed still uh, on that. So it annual filings could easily have been lost. Um, so double check that website just to make sure you're you're okay.
0: Yeah, yeah. Be good to your organization,
1: please. All right. The last one, one I love, go ahead. <laughs> so The same way you want to check with your IRS status, you probably want to check with your state status. And that can be a couple agencies. So the corporate agency that we talked about, usually the Secretary of State's office, you want to make sure your corporation is in good standing, that they usually require some sort of annual or biannual filing that, that comes to them. And then the attorney general or charities regulator might be a different agency, and they may also require charity registration on an annual basis. So making sure you file with each of those agencies is really important. And there's usually an online database for most States where you can check to see what your most recent filing was. And if you're delinquent or if you've been suspended um, or even uh, in, in some cases um, terminated because of lack of filing. So if, if you find that, then, you know, there's stuff to fix and you probably need to call a lawyer at that point. Um, But just check it. If you check it annually, you'll find it's easy. Again, probably once you've done it once and you write down a few notes about how to access that site, it'll only take you a few minutes to just double check both the state, usually secretary of state for your corporation um, status, and the attorney general or charities regulator for your charities registration status.
0: Right. You want to make sure that you're... uh in compliance not and and for the for the latter of that in compliance not only in your state but now I'm going beyond your one hour but uh that's okay we go a little deeper you need to be in compliance with the solicitation regu- regulations in all the states where you are
1: soliciting donations not just And they need your, to call not just your yeah. own state and they need to call somebody like you if that's the case so if they know they're fundraising in multiple states or using Um, people or companies to help them fundraise in other states. They need to call someone like you and say, hey, what do we need to do to make sure that we're in compliance with that other state's rules? We're we're not incorporated there, but we're doing business or fundraising there. What do we need to do? Right. Thank you. It's
0: time for a break. Send in Blue. It's an all-in-one digital marketing platform with tools to build end-to-end digital campaigns that look professional, are affordable, and keep you organized. They do digital campaign marketing. Most marketing software is designed for big companies and has that enterprise-level price tag. Tisk tisk! if you're using those. Sendinblue is priced for nonprofits. It's an easy-to-use marketing platform that walks you through the steps of building a campaign. To try out SendinBlue and get a free month, hit the listener landing page at tony.ma/slash-sendinblue. We've got buku, but loads more time for your five-point one-hour legal audit. For the for the, um, I'm going backwards a little bit because you know your host is lackluster. I'm sorry. Um, if if we find out that we're uh, on uh, step four, if we're not. If we have lost our IRS 501c3 status for some reason, what would you recommend doing?
1: So find out the reason, first of all. So um, if it was for um, failing to file three 990s in a row, that's probably the most common reason for getting um, your exemption revoked. Um, find out if that was actually true. Did you actually miss those filings? Did an accountant help you with them? Um, did some you know, volunteer do that? Um, find out what the status is. Uh, and then uh, contact the IRS to, to ensure that that was the actual reason. And if you have filed the 990s and the IRS has somehow lost it, you should tell that to them. Um, see if you have a, like a return receipt, which I always recommend if you haven't electronically filed, make sure you have some evidence that it actually got sent, uh, to the IRS's office because that will help you. And in, uh, if they had made the mistake, uh, or they lost the filing, that'll help um, them reverse the process. Uh, but if it is actually the case where you fail to file, um, have those filings ready to go. So hire an accountant or somebody who can help you prepare those files, have them ready to go. And there is a reinstatement process where you actually have to fill out the Form 1023, which is the exemption application that a startup would have to file. Uh, But you're doing it for reinstating your tax exempt status. Um, So there is a process. The IRS has tried to make it easier for some organizations where they've just kind of missed filings, but it hasn't been like We've been out of compliance for 20 years. Yeah, We've never filed. Right. Yeah. So go through that process. If you can get a lawyer or an accountant to help you, um, um, please do so. It, it's, while they try to make it as easy as possible, it's still kind of complicated. And there are some nuances that can help you uh, and the, some that can hurt you. So that's going to take a little bit longer to fix if you have to fix it. But it is, for the most part, fixable. If we're going to
0: go beyond our one-hour, five-point uh, 5, five point
1: legal audit, what would where would we spend more time? So there are some common areas of concern for nonprofits. Okay. I would say one of the big ones is getting your independent contractor employee distinction right. So knowing what the difference is, because I would say that a lot of organizations, when they get into trouble, they get into trouble on that point. And on that point, volunteer board members could actually be held personally liable for non-payment of payroll taxes. And by that I mean if you determine that a worker is an independent contractor but legally they should have been an employee, let's say they're working 40 hours a week and they don't work for anyone else and yeah. they're doing the job that, you know, a, an executive director does for an organization, but you go, I don't want to pay the payroll taxes because we can't afford it. So we're just going to call you an independent contractor. That's not going to be consistent with the definition um, uh, that the IRS views. And the state may have their own definitions as well. Um, But the employer for an employee has to pay their portion of the payroll tax. And if the payroll tax didn't get paid, uh, then there may be a claim against the organization. And then in enforcing that, they may say, this was the board's fault. Um, Mm. Charitable assets should not be used to pay for this type of penalty because this was sort of gross negligence on this part. So board members could be out of pocket to pay for those payroll taxes if they hadn't been paid. So uh, because withholding and paying payroll taxes, the employer shares is the, the employer's duty. So be careful of, of that one distinction I would say is, is my next thing that's going to take longer, but it would be the next thing on my audit list. Okay. Yeah, common
0: misconception that, uh, oh, well, if we, if we call them uh, a contractor and we send them a 1099, then that's what they are. And and there's a whole, you and I have done shows on this. There's a whole test of, you know, do they work for other people? Whose equipment do they use? Who sets the hours? Who sets the location of the work? Who sets the timing of the work? It's a the whole list of fa- multi-factor tests. Uh, yeah. So it's not just, you know, you call it a, you call them an independent contractor because you're saving on employment taxes and, uh, and unemployment and and benefits that are required. It's, it's not,
1: it's not that simple. So. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And not only the IRS could be involved, but the person, the worker who got misclassified could actually go after you later. Yeah, or your state, or your state department of labor. Yeah, exactly. And they may have a slightly different definition of independent contractors and employees. And California is kind of this big example because they're, they're sort of um, leading the way, if you will, in terms of employment rights. Um, yeah. And so they had made a much more difficult distinction, making it very hard for nonprofits to claim that they have independent contractors if they occupy the type of job that an employee would occupy. So even if it was for a limited duration of time, that may not matter anymore that they were there for three months only, but if they were an administrative assistant or an executive director, they may need to be called a temporary or part-time employee and not an independent contractor anymore. So it's gotten much, much tougher on the state level.
0: What's next? What, in your experience, what do you see as a another common
1: problem? So not necessarily a problem, but for a way Um, for the boards to sort of quickly get policies in place to make sure that they're doing their job in terms of providing oversight since they're not there every day. And, you know, maybe they're meeting once a month or once every other month um, uh, and maybe for just a couple hours. So there's only so much that they can do, but what they can do is create some policies or have policies created that they can approve that govern the organization. And these policies, some of them are referenced in the form 990 and the 990 asks you, the IRS is asking you through the 990, do you have these policies? And if you say no, well, it used to be kind of normal a while ago, you know, more than 10 years ago for a lot of organizations to say no, Mm -hmm. but since they started asking these questions, I think in 2008, maybe, um, The more often you put no, the more an outlier you've become because most organizations have seen these questions and said, oh, if we keep saying no to this, is this going to trigger an audit risk? Uh, Mm -hmm. And the answer is probably yes. Um, So saying yes to we have these policies makes sense. And that would be document retention and destruction, whistleblower, uh, the board level review of the Form 990. Um, Those are are really common ones that that you can incorporate really quickly. I would also add expense reimbursements. Who has signing authority? Can anybody in your organization sign a contract or sign a check? Um, Or only the executive director? What if they're not around? Um, So just having policies rather than the board going, you guys figure it out. um, Having a policy in place is really important for a board to do. Um, Gift acceptance, um, another one. Gift acceptance, yeah,
0: All right. Uh, there's another angle to this too, which is the uh, the charity rating agencies, um, Charity Navigator. Uh, well, uh, the old GuideStar now it's merged and it's uh, Candid merged with the Foundation Center at Candid, but th- those rating agencies also ask for, ask about these standard policies like whistleblower, document retention, et cetera. Yeah. It's a proxy uh, conflict, conflict of interest, interest board oh. conflict of interest, another, another common, uh, commonly
1: required policy. Absolutely. And I I'm sorry, I missed that one because I think that's the most important one of okay. all of them okay. outside of the articles and bylaws. That's right, I got rules.
0: you. I got you, Gene. All right. No problem. So, yeah. So aside from uh, the IRS asking, charity rating agencies ask also for these basic policies. All right.
1: Yeah, and it's a proxy for them to say, is this organization well-governed? Does it have a good board of directors in place? Um, and if you keep answering, no, we don't have these policies, yeah. then they're going to assume that you're not very well-governed.
0: Yeah. Oh, well, it's like someone reading your bylaws or your articles of incorporation. You know, somebody might get a wild hair and decide to go read your articles of incorporation and then see that uh, they're out of date. Or you might, you know, you might have your bylaws disclosed on your website but some disgruntled person or just even some uh, neutral person might see that you know you don't you don't conduct yourself the way your documents say you're supposed to you know it's embarrassing at, at, at the at the best it's embarrassing
1: yeah and for for um older folks like me Tony uh, when somebody has in their bylaws like you can deliver notice by telegraph um, <laughs> that's not, not a great sign for some of the younger funders <laughs> who may be considering your organization. Right, all right, or we could even update it and make it still bad.
0: facts. notice, <laughs> notice by fax, uh, facsimile. I still have a hotmail account, so I'm okay with facts. So. <laughs> all right, but you not use your fax.
1: You don't have a fax machine, do you? I still do. You do. Do you get any traffic on it? Um, I, well, I use eFax as, as my primary. So I have a, a paper printing fax as a backup, but eFax okay. is the primary. I remember eFax.
0: You used to send, you could, people would send documents to the phone number, right? At,
1: like the phone number at eFax.com or something, and it would print on your machine. Wasn't that, wasn't that how it works? Oh, so this eFax is, um, they sent a fax to my fax machine, but I have my fax machine turned off and it sends me an email of what the fax would look like. Oh, uh,
0: okay. Okay.
1: Well, that's all, okay. So I'm starting
0: but there there was a there was efax used to you, somebody could send an email to your fax machine through the phone number at efax.com and it would print on your machine.
1: Yeah, I think that's right, Tony. Right,
0: but you've updated uh you you're you've you updated sometime around 1997,
1: I guess. One <laughs> sub level above and that. You yeah. uh you get an email now. Congratulations, you get emails. <laughs> all right, Jane, that's uh, my, yeah, my it, nieces don't even answer emails now. It has to be text, text or, right. or they're not responding.
0: Right. In another year, it'll just be. It's, if it's not a TikTok, then forget about it. They don't, <laughs> they don't know you. All right, we're going to leave it there, Gene. So we talked about our five points. We talked about going a little further. If you're, if you, uh, if you want the uh, summa cum laude of legal audits, you can go a couple steps further. Thank you very much, Gene. Great to be with you, Tony. Thank you. Um, My pleasure. Thank you. Gene Takagi. NEO is the firm, the nonprofit and exempt organizations law group in San Francisco. Subscribe to this blog, nonprofitlawblog.com. It is wildly popular. And Gene is at GTAC. Thanks again, Gene. Thanks, Tony. Next week, more from 21NTC, the nonprofit technology conference. If you missed any part of this week's show, I beseech you, Find it at TonyMartinetti.com. We're sponsored by Turn 2 Communications, PR and content for nonprofits. Your story is their mission. Turn-2.co. And by SendinBlue, the only all-in-one digital marketing platform empowering nonprofits to grow. Tony.ma slash SendinBlue. Our creative producer is Claire Meyerhoff. The show's social media is by Susan Susan Chavez. Mark Silverman is our web guy. And this music is by Scott Stein. Thank you for that affirmation, Scotty. Be with me next week for Nonprofit Radio. Big nonprofit ideas for the other 95%. Go out and be great.